0: All right, so Carl Douglas, welcome to the Killer Cross Examination Podcast. Thank you, man. Thanks for having me on. I I can't even tell you what an honor it is to have you <laughs> on this podcast. Um, first of all, I I feel like I watched you. I, I knew nothing about your career prior to that, but you become one of those, in my opinion, an iconic lawyer for not just your role in in um, talking about, uh, you know, in defending O.J. Simpson, um, working with Johnny Cochran, but then on your own right, and I've just looked at some of the verdicts and some of the, the results you've gotten for families, for civil rights cases. I mean, really, you have um, uh, seized the moment in, in defending people who've been abused by the powers that be. So just very honored and, and proud to be able to talk to you.
1: Thank you, man. And I'm sorry it's been so difficult for us to hook up. Not at all.
0: Not at all. So, I do want to jump into it. So, let let me. You were center stage, and not just center stage, but you were center stage in the middle as an actor, watching one of the the most significant, if not the most significant, trial that occurred in um, the the last hundred, maybe you know, two hundred years. And I don't want to. I don't want to start getting into competitions about what was the biggest case and everything else, but it was the case that captured everybody's attention for a variety of reasons. So I just have to ask, what was it like to be, not just center stage, not just to have a seat in the front row of the courtroom, but to be at the table and to take part in that that case? Just, I'm dying to know.
1: It's interesting, Neil, because... I always said there are few occasions in life when you recognize this is a moment that you should absorb. I'm from Los Angeles, Hollywood. So big moments are what we thrive and live for here in Los Angeles. And it was really clear early on when our firm got involved that this was gonna be a special moment and I thought from the very first um, day of the Bronco Chase that our firm was singularly prepared in Los Angeles to handle such a case as OJ Simpson. So it was a... It why was did a- you
0: think... And you've said Los Angeles a couple of times and Hollywood. Will you, will you set the stage for me why that was such a why that is something that factored into why a, a, a law firm of, of your magnitude with the talent and significance and willingness to take on those kinds of cases. Why was the fact that it's in Hollywood It involved, I mean, OJ Simpson and, um, and it was in LA. Why were those factors that, that made your case as you're watching it, we're going to be involved in this case. And if we get involved, we're the right guys.
1: Well, Neil, you first have to understand who Johnny Cochran Jr. was. He was my mentor, other than my mother, the most impactful person on my life. In my life, and as famous as he became worldwide after O.J. Simpson, Johnny was famous here in L.A. before O.J. Simpson, particularly. In the African American and, and, and Latin communities here in Los Angeles, because he was at the forefront of the vanguard against police abuse for decades here in Los Angeles, even before O.J. Simpson, he was the man, and everyone knew it. In terms of being the number one criminal lawyer that anyone would go to if they needed it. I remember before O.J. Simpson, there was an actor, Todd Bridges, out of the Different Strokes fame, he was charged with a case, and that was another very high-profile case. Back in the early 70s, there was a, or the early 80s, there was a case involving a football player named Ron Settles in Signal Hill, and that became basically the iconic moment when Johnny... Cochran's name was etched into the fabric of Los Angeles because he was the, the vanguard against the police. So we were the hottest things, man, in Los Angeles. <laughs> I love it. Time, anyway, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And you know, really, man, you, as you know, as a criminal lawyer, you gotta be that way. Right. You don't plan to get arrested. You don't plan to get fired from your job. You don't, plan to get, you, know, you, don't, you don't plan to get injured. So when you do get arrested, if you do get injured, if you do get fired from your job, you look around, who do, I, who do I call? You ask your friends, who's the person? It's kind of like looking for an apartment. Who do you know that has a good apartment kind of a thing? And that is based on the character of the person. If my liberty is at stake, I want a person. Who will represent me and set me free. By contrast, companies do plan to get sued. So they hire firms. But and they have them ready and they're ready correct. to go.
0: They're ready. They're posturing. The whole time they're everything they do is sort of, and we'll get to that because this plays into sort of in a way about qualified immunity and civil rights and how police departments and cities sort of set themselves up in various ways to protect their police officers. But you've hit the nail right on the head that when people come to a criminal defense lawyer or even a personal injury lawyer, or really when it comes down to when something you're just minding your own business, so to speak, and then all of a sudden you're in trouble. You need someone that can get in there and it doesn't have a policy. There's no plan is able to just pick it up and sort of say, get behind me. Get on my back, right? Yeah. And I'm going to get you through this as far as I can.
1: And that, um, it, 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 with that arrogance, when O.J. Simpson was arrested, that we at the law offices of Johnny L. Cochran Jr. thought that we should be involved. And he didn't hire us initially, you'll remember. I do. He hired Bob Shapiro. The first and- guy
0: was Howard Weitzman, right? He was at the scene... At he the scene was, that
1: day, true, true yeah, enough.
0: Yeah, um, yeah.
1: He, he, went to, he went to lunch, Howard in Peace, and allowed O.J. to speak for an hour and a half to police officers while his lawyer went to lunch. And I've people do heard... not really understand that. For that hour and a half, O.J. Simpson <laughs> answered every question that the police officers asked of him. So I me. want you to know
0: that I have heard. So I've talked to, you know, may he rest in peace. I talked to uh, Effie Bailey Bailey. Um, what wow. a character I'm telling you. Can I, can I, I'm going to digress for a second. When I was speaking with Effley Bailey, you would have thought I was going on a date. I had uh. shaved, I had my hair. I'm like, how do I, how do I smell? I was like, mush, you know, pushing down my eyebrows. Cause I was like, this is the man. I mean, I don't, it didn't matter what his current bar status was,
1: he was the man. Before the O.J. Simpson trial, F. Lee Bailey was one of my heroes, one of my warriors that I looked up to, and it was such a great opportunity for me to, to see him and to listen and learn from him. He gave me my first laptop computer <laughs> in that in the you know, i cherished at the time so <laughs> f lee was always near and dear to my heart all right so you
0: believe so i want to walk you through a little bit of that because i love the war stories and these are this is sort of an unusual war story because usually our war stories come from what happens when you're in the courtroom this is sort of as you guys believe we should be getting the phone call where you're calling the operator and saying, is our phone working? Like, is the phone line working? Is there some reason why we're not getting the call? And here you are. You see first Howard Weitzman, who I know has passed away. May he rest in peace. And there's that issue about uh, allowing OJ to go down and to be interviewed or not being there when he went to be interviewed, I should say. Then there's Robert Shapiro. Did you know Robert Shapiro prior to seeing him involved in – all of a sudden taking on the the OJ case. Did you know him? Did you know of his reputation? What was your reaction?
1: I did not know Bob personally, but certainly I knew of him. He was probably best known for representing Miko Brando, Marlon Brando's son in a big case. Uh, He represented F. Lee Bailey in a drunk driving case once. And we knew in the legal criminal circles in that time that Bob was known more as a fixer, if you will, as opposed to a trial dog with two Gs. Mm. (laughs) So When he was on the case, um, certainly there was conversations throughout the legal community of Los Angeles about what was going to happen. And whether Bob had the skill set and 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 the temerity and and the intensity ne- needed to represent O.J. Simpson all the way through trial. And in fact, Johnny Cochran initially was a commentator for NBC News during the early stages and during the preliminary hearing. So we were on the sidelines, just watching and just hoping for something to change.
0: Did you keep thinking to yourself, "Are uh, is are we getting the call?" Was it one of those things like at a daily? basis where you're thinking or weekly basis are we get we gotten the call we gotten the call anybody know why we haven't gotten the call was that sort of going through collectively the firm as you were as you were um you know thinking about it and as the case was progressing
1: certainly inside the firm we were talking about whether we would get the call when it first happened i remember the friday afternoon when the bronco chase was going on during the during the basketball finals, and we were sitting around because we would always have our staff meetings, five o'clock on Fridays, and we'd be in the conference room waiting for Johnny. he's always late to come to the meeting. <laughs> we were watching watching the, the basketball game waiting for Johnny. And yeah. The, and the, yeah, and the brunch and the Bronco chase goes on. After then, because Johnny had an ongoing relationship with NBC News. Um, He became a commentator early on, so it wasn't like a day-to-day kind of a thing, but I do remember he got a call from someone connected, not from O.J., but someone connected with King World. Hmm. King World was a production company, and they were Hollywood types who made the first entree if you will that hey and this was after the preliminary hearing in california as you could appreciate most around the country there's first a hearing taking place as we to whether or not there's sufficient evidence to hold the defendant for trial that was publicized every every appearance you know every t- every time um, oj was in court there were cameras and it was like time stopped here in los angeles and probably much around the country. Yes. So Simpson was the most famous celebrity, man, ever charged with murder. I
0: know. Absolutely.
1: So It's, right. it's so, amazing that he's remembered for being a defendant. Oh, no, I
0: remember a... him. I remember him for everything else. But yeah, was, sure. Came. So I'll tell you, I, I actually met him once in a okay. bathroom. And I'm in the bathroom, and, you know, this is after the verdict, and I'm in the bathroom, and, uh, you know, guy walks in and there's not, you know when someone walks in the bathroom in a big bathroom and all of a sudden there's a lot of there's a lot of murmuring in the men's bathroom yeah right either something bad is going to happen or there's something that you shouldn't see right Right, right. So there's like murmuring and all of a sudden i'm like he just walks up next to me and i'm like fucking oj simpson right (laughs) very very very
1: very charismatic
0: it was and he was like woo. And I'll tell you, I mean, I hate to say, I mean, Guy is a good looking charismatic guy. I mean, just, just even in that moment. Magnetic
1: who would take over the room when he entered the room, wherever he was.
0: So, all right. I, and I, at some point, so I, I think one of those moments and there aren't a lot of them in life where you remember exactly where you were, believe it or not, in the OJ Simpson saga, there were a couple of moments for me. One, I knew exactly where I was when the, the Bronco chase was occurring. Exactly. I knew exactly where I was. I knew exactly who I was with. I know because we we're in a big, huge like bar. You know, I think we we're watching a game and all of a sudden it's like, wait, why is the game not on? Wait, what's that? All of a sudden, Everybody's glued to the TV. Not like they would be if it's a game where they're watching and eating and watching and drinking and everybody's glued. The, the, the restaurant might as well have shut down whatever they were serving because nobody was, was watch, no one was ordering. The second was the verdict. And I'll tell you how I remember where I was in the verdict because when, I, when the verdict came down, we in the prosecutor's office, when they went out, we're like, all right, you know, I mean, it's going to be a long verdict, right? It's going to be a while. And obviously we weren't allowed to have TVs in our office. Yeah. So everybody's milling around, and all of a sudden, it was like door, 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 door slam, door slam, door slam. People got out the little Walkmans and got out the little TV with the antenna, and we couldn't believe it. I mean, you know, if there was a single case going on at that time in the Oakland County Prosecutor's Office or in the courtroom in the courthouse, there wasn't a prosecutor that was there. I can tell you right now because they were all in the offices waiting for the verdict. So. I mean, those were just iconic moments. Those are moments that you don't have very often in life.
1: I'm older than you, and I can remember the day that John F. Kennedy was shot. November 22nd, 1963, I was eight years old, recessed in the third grade. That, the OJ verdict, and 9-11, for me, are moments that will always be etched In my memory until I take my last breath on this earth. And I hope that's not for
0: some time. So all right. So I I have to ask, there have been it seems like everybody's written a book. It seems like everybody has talked about the case in one way or another. Everybody has talked about the actors and the 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 portrayals. And I don't want to dog on anybody, but um, I asked Effley Bailey what he thought about uh nathan lane's portrayal and i mean how athlete bailey if 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 his memory was if his memory was 10 or 20 percent better during the trial during that time period than it was when i talked to him in his 80s he must have had one of the great memories of all time and uh i did ask i also ended up talking to alan dershowitz about his experiences and what he thought about the portrayals so what did you think about the portrayals? First of all, who portrayed you
1: in the case? Do you remember? Uh, yes, sure. We, we met. There was a guy named Dale Godboldo. And Dale Godboldo was a, a musketeer with Christine Aguilera, Ryan Gosling, and others. He was a musketeer. And it's funny because during the filming... He told me later, the actors were prevented from meeting with the people, the actual people that they were portraying. And Sarah Paulson and Marsha Clark did meet. But because that the FX movie was based on a book by um, Jeff Tubin that was slanted in a certain way, I would say, they didn't want the actors to meet the actual people. I had a chance to have Dale Godbaldo over my house during episode five, which was my episode, if you will, when Bill Hodgman had his heart attack. Yeah, And it was so wild. The take one
0: for the team.
1: Yeah, it was so (laughs) surreal that we were watching him playing me. We had like a, a listening party and my staff was there and we were sitting next to each other in my house watching the episode as he played me. It was interesting, um, you know. No one could emulate Johnny Cochran properly, I say. Although although Courtney Vance looked just like him, I thought Sarah Paulson and my guy that played Chris Darden, um, uh, Sterling Brown, were on target in terms of the mannerisms and how they captured the essence of the people. Uh, I thought. John Travolta's portrayal of Bob Shapiro was a caricature. And most the, the most um, inconsistent with my recollection of Bob. And, and, and Bob had jerkish ways, don't get me wrong, but I thought that was more of a caricature. Uh, the the series was, you know, 75, 80% accurate. Any of the portrayals that happened inside the defense team were dramatic. Any of the interactions that they had, like on the terrace between Marsha and Johnny and Johnny hands Marsha some coffee was dramatic, dramatized. But it generally was consistent with what happened in trial. And I it was entertainment and I enjoyed it.
0: So I have... Um... It's funny because that was the first, I know the William Kennedy Smith trial was obviously a, um, and I've talked to Roy Black about that, really the first sort of publicized trial. And there was a debate about cameras in the courtroom and everything else. And then the OJ trial was, I believe the first trial that wasn't just publicized, but it really did sort of spawn court TV and the generation of talking heads and the, the daily, if you will, sort of scorecard where every at the end of the day everybody's trying to come up with the you know how do you have it on rounds today who's ahead and who's not ahead and the challenge with that as someone who I've been in the courtroom in those kinds of cases and of course you have in the biggest case imaginable is that you can't see the jury all of the who's doing what and how's it going you just can't see the little things that we do right the little things that you do that we do when you're looking over at the jury, and I, you knew when Johnny Cochran, I, you could just tell that the jury was, that guy was so cool. And he was just sitting there. He just was cool. He, it was almost like everybody wanted permission. Are, are we allowed to laugh now?
1: Is Johnny laughing? Oh, he's not laughing. Oh, he's laughing. Okay. Right? Several thought, one, it's a marathon and not a sprint. You can't do what the media would want you to do in terms of handicapping each day as it goes along. You're so right, you so right. And Great we would always, we would all, because every time before we left at the end of the day, me, Johnny and Shapiro would caucus and figure out what's the spin of the day. Because by pattern, Bob Shapiro would walk out the courtroom to his, to his car and there'd be reporters throwing questions. Every day I walk up with my cart, get in my car, walk to the parking lot, get in my car, and they'd ask me questions and follow me. So having a consistent spin was something that we worked on always. And it was very important to remember too, you know, as a defense lawyer, you will lay groundwork on day two that you won't necessarily pick up until day seven. And it's not until you, you pick it all up, that it all comes together. So, you know, handicapping one day at a time is always the problem. I say always, Neil, in trial, you are laying down pieces of coal all throughout. And then in closing argument, you're picking it up, shining it and showing the lovely diamond to the jury. That's a
0: great way to characterize it. Great way to characterize, it. They, way to it, characterize it. it. they may
1: not have seen the diamond when you laid the piece of coal down in the beginning. But then throughout the trial, at the closing, you'll pick it up, shine it off, and show everyone the diamond. Now, you you had trial experience,
0: a lot of trial experience. And, of course, your team, uh, I don't know if there was ever a team that had more trial experience in civil and criminal cases that went into a case collectively and individually. It seems to me that almost any one of you could have tried that case. I'm not saying that you could have and you would have but you guys had the chops, right? You had the ability to cross-examine and conduct, but you each had roles.
1: Every one of the lawyers had tried a murder case to verdict, except Bob Shapiro. It's kind of like going into a world war and the general had never seen the stress (laughs) of battle. Johnny Cochran, (laughs) you gotta understand, Johnny Cochran started as a city attorney a municipal prosecutor, and he would prosecute deuces, drunk drivings and prostitution cases, uh, three, four, five trials a week for, for years, developing that sixth sense that you would get talking to jurors, talking to people and knowing about evidence. I would always tell the lawyers, because I was like the, I was like the hub, or the, the, the hub in the center of a wheel. And since I knew Johnny best as the managing lawyer in his firm for 10 years, I would always tell the staff, folks, trust his judgment. Don't, I know it may seem inconv- unconventional, but trust his judgment. Because he had that sense that was honed in the crucible of trials, man, that cannot be duplicated in any other in any other way.
0: Who watched the jury for people who don't know, and we get a lot of people who watch this podcast, who and listen to the podcast, who are some are lawyers, some are just true crime because interested in true crime. But this is a dialogue because I, I, I'm not like a guy who's just interested in the in, in it and just talking about it. Like I'm a lawyer, I can relate as you're describing things to me. I can relate and I can picture sure. it. Um, I've had trials where the entire time we are. And we're watching I mean, you can't just stare at them but we're watching them we're trying to get a sense of uh, where are they moving who's that and i remember one trial it was this massive trial and i the end i kept telling i kept telling my team like look at juror number eight she's not on board she's not on board i'm looking at her i at one point during my closing i start to to, to close and it's like i'm giving a one juror closing i'm like trying to do this to talk to her it turns out later they acquitted. She was the she was our strongest juror, and um, I watched that. And she, well, later one of the the guys that tried the case with me, who helped put the case together, he's like he went and talked to them. What was the deal? And she's like, well, I felt this. I felt so strongly about the case from the beginning. I never wanted to ever appear as so though I wasn't giving it, you know, like my honest. Who was watching the juror? Were you, were you guys watching the jurors or was it just one of those cases where there was too much going on to pay attention
1: to what the jurors were doing? You gotta understand first, this was the trial of the century. No question. OJ Simpson had money and a willingness to spend it to defend himself. So we had juror consultants and focus groups and surveys before the trial even started. We understood and knew the themes that we thought would work best. We knew counterintuitively that African-American women were the strongest supporters of OJ Simpson. And it was counterintuitive because OJ didn't have much connection or resonance with the black community here in Los Angeles. He lived in Brentwood over there. His wife was blonde hair and blue eyed. So it was counterintuitive that African-American women were the strongest support of OJ Simpson. We knew it on the defense. The prosecution had their own jury consultants and they knew it as well. The jurors were professional jurors, Neil. They knew because the audience was filled with media watching them every second of trial. They knew the trial was being televised, so their family was watching the trial. We were in trial for nine months, man. So a two week trial, it's hard to discern a jury, but nine months jurors learn how to become professional jurors. Amazing point, I hadn't thought of it that way. They learn how to, just blank, couldn't say anything. Now, there were occasions which were reflected in the FX series when there was a boycott, man. When the jurors all came into court dressed in black and they were boycotting the decision to change the guards because we on the defense felt the guards were trying to kick off African-American jurors by exposing things that they may say or, 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 or investigating them more sternly than the non-Black jurors. And there's the concept that you may know of called the Stockholm Syndrome. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. When prisoners take on affection for their captors. Hey, you had yeah, Epley Bailey
0: there. That was, yeah. uh, I mean, the, that was one of the things that people wanted to hear about in the the Patty Hearst case is whether or not she was really on board absolutely. or was she a, uh, yes,
1: and, absolutely. And, and, and lest there be no doubt when that was going on, he was reminding us of, of his, his past experiences. But as amazingly for me, at least, these were black jurors predominantly who were refusing to come to court in protest collectively, and then expressing their, their dismay and their anger By all wearing black i I remember and i've
0: read multiple books about the case i remember watching it i've watched youtube video after youtube video with different cross examinations i've watched you in court um i watched uh, johnny cochran in court i watched f lee bailey in court i watched when i was a prosecutor i think i talked to was it woody clark or i think it was woody Woody. clark you know um years ago about the dna evidence and how they were instructed to put it on he's like you want to take how long to put it on (laughs) um so i want you to change hats for a second sure um and if you were not that you would choose to but if you were to prosecute go back in time and look at the oj case and you were on the prosecution team apart from throwing saying i'm 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 not going to get involved I'm not going to get involved if Furman's involved. I'm not going to get involved for this reason. Is there a way that you can see, looking back at the case, that the case could have been presented better by the people in a in a way that could have secured them a better result? And I don't want to get into the whole they could have picked their venue better because I've heard all that you know stuff here and there, and it could have been in this court and that court and this and I don't want to get into that because that just plays into you know. I'm just talking about the way it was. Is there a way that you see? that this case could have been presented better or differently knowing what you know, where the result would have been the same if Johnny was trying the case, the same defense, same team. And if the answer is
1: no, the answer is no. If yes, then I'm, I'm interested to hear it. People in Michigan, Wisconsin, North Carolina can't understand or are incapable of understanding that verdict without appreciating the dynamics that existed in 1994 between the police and the black and brown community in Los Angeles. I said earlier how the number one supporter of OJ Simpson were black women. We knew it, the defense, the prosecution knew it as well. Why? Because black women, Neil, are the mothers and the daughters and the sisters of black men. And in Los Angeles, you can stop any black person at random. And they will give you a story of themselves or a family member or a friend who was treated unfairly by the police. That may not be the experience in your neighborhood. No, I think it is. I'm going to be straight with you. I, I, think,
0: I think that it is. I think that it, remember, a state or a community is made up of so many different parts. Sure. But, I mean, we, So you understand, so you understand. We keep so from Detroit, that, which is where I mean, we Detroit, see people who get are pulled over under the worst circumstances where you're like, horrible. He's going one mile over, pull him over. Sure, okay. Minnesota, we see what happened in Minnesota, obviously.
1: Exactly, but, but you also see that George Floyd was only the second police officer in Minnesota ever charged with an on-duty death of someone in custody. And the only other person before that was a Somali cop who shot a white woman, okay? But the point is- Now we've got Kim Potter, but she wasn't convicted of murder. She was convicted of- Correct, but, 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 but given that the, the dynamic yeah. in Los Angeles, coupled with police officers who took the Fifth Amendment in a murder trial, coupled with a demonstration that was ill-conceived and ridiculously performed and an abject failure. You can't change the dynamics of the culture in Los Angeles but you can choose to not present evidence knowing it was so ripe with impeachment as they did, raising the questions about the efficacy of the evidence. Right. So I
0: think that is a great point. Now, so that's a great point, which, means, which, which leads to a, a bigger discussion that I want to touch on with you in a second. So I'm going to come back to that in a second. During the trial, you had cross examination moments that I've watched that I thought you were. They were good moments, and I know that there were, you know, in the sea of lawyers and everybody there was this. I saw Johnny Cochran's moments. I happen to think that Epley Bailey's best cross-examination was not Mark Furman, to be frank with there, I thought it was, who was the, uh, was, was uh, Sergeant Rossi. I thought his cross-examination of Rossi was brilliant. Um, and there were moments during that that I thought were fantastic. Tell me if you would take me right into the courtroom. Give me your the moment where you were watching and you were like, man, that is some good lawyering right there.
1: Oh, well, our question, Barry Sheck was the most effective lawyer. And I love Johnny Cochran, don't get me wrong. Um, but Barry had a Columbo-esque way about him but he was a workaholic. He knew every point, and he knew the science better than the witnesses. And the crime lab technicians made fundamental errors in the collection of evidence. After the O.J. Simpson trial, Neil the the crime lab of the LAPD underwent a multi-million dollar upgrade. We made the city better because Good. we exposed the weaknesses of, of the LAPD collection problems.
0: Because I'm sick and tired of the police. De- I personally think I hate to see police departments and the state. I hate the idea. I'm going to back up for a second. That the crime lab is a police lab. I hate that. Correct. I don't think there are... Sh- I, The Michigan State Police Lab, the California Highway Patrol Lab, the L.A. I don't think that's how it should be. It's a lab. It should just be a lab. as open to anybody. If you want evidence tested, send it there. People come to court, whatever. I hate the idea that they are police officers. You should not be able to coalesce the science for yourself. Science is science. But unfortunately, that's not the way it is. So you guys have made improvements there as as a result of the verdict. And Barry Sheck was huge in in doing that.
1: But Barry Sheck's advocacy um, was very impressive. And over the course of the trial, it was interesting. He grew so much within the trial that Johnny allowed him to do an important part of the closing argument, which Johnny had never. (laughs) Right. Closing, you know. (laughs) (laughs) But that said, the quality of his advocacy and how he was universally beloved among the lawyers on the team. All right,
0: I wanna fast forward to um, some, I I know that I've seen you have had, you and your firm have had some incredible, looks like um, results in civil rights cases and in civil cases yes um so tell me um i mean and anybody that wants to see any more about you know what you're doing obviously is listening to the podcast they can go to your website which is uh douglashickslaw.com is that right yes yes Uh, correct and there's there are results after results after results i think at one point you've had one of the largest uh verdicts or settlements uh, for a you know an amount of money that could you know fund a, a, a nation, yes. Um, but I want you to comment on what I, we see happening currently in cities with police departments all over the country. So I've got some speed questions for you, okay? sure. sure. Um, qualified immunity, what would you do with it? How do we get rid of it? Is there any room for it in current society?
1: I, pr- I prosecute my civil rights cases in state court as opposed to federal court because I so hate qualified immunity. And with the current political climate, it will be virtually impossible to summon the will to change what is an awful legal theory that basically provides the police with another justification for their wrongful conduct. I, we have a very progressive civil rights statute in California, most states do not. But I run from federal court because I so hate qualified immunity. I've had several cases in the last two years dismissed because of motion for summary judgment based on qualified immunity of unarmed men of color shot or killed by law enforcement officers up and down the state. I hate it. Um,
0: The trend, the trend lately. I mean, and we could, sadly, we could probably spend an hour, probably more, listing off the names of young black men and young black women who have been um, killed, who are unarmed, who posed no apparent threat, who were shot multiple times in the front, in the back, on the ground. Um, and it doesn't seem to be getting any better. Right. What What do we do? I mean, the story, story after story. Okay. I mean, you know, Dante you know, Wright. I, 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 honestly, can I, I'm going to digress here for a second and go on a bit of a rant. The way the judge in the case in in, I don't know her, never practiced in front of her, but the, the way that the, the judge in the in the Kim Potter case reacted after that verdict and during the sentencing was abominable. It was abysmal in my opinion. It was a Shonda, as they would say, in Yiddish, which is a shame. Kim Potter, there's two simple training. There's one heavy thing, which is your gun, and one light thing, which is your taser. And she pulled out her gun, thinking it was her taser, which makes no sense, then shot. Dante Wright. And then, believe it or not, for those who know the case, and I'm sure you followed it and commented on it, then she was heard later on wailing about the impact this would have on her life.
1: Neil, I so had a judge I,
0: sat they're crying about her.
1: Neil, in, 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 in the early 2000s, I had a case um, in Madera, California. Of a, of a police officer, another female, there was a handcuffed suspect in the back seat of his police car. He was kicking the windows of the car. The police officer opened up the door, to stopped kicking, thinking she pulls out her taser, she pulls out her handgun, shoots him once in the chest and kills him. She drops to her knees and cries, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. She wasn't even prosecuted. Okay, she wasn't even prosecuted. She's, she left the force and is back on the force today. So I get it, I get the outrage. What's problem is because you gotta remember man, I was practicing law when Rodney King happened and we thought then, okay guys, we've got them now. Here's the proof that you've heard so much about. We've got them now. 18 months or so later, the tide turns against police lawyers once again. In May of 2020, George Floyd's death upset the world. There were people walking in the streets of Australia, Paris, in the Middle East, they were protesting the death of George Floyd. They did a poll and in 2022, the image of Black Lives Matter is worse today among residents in Minnesota than it was the day before George Floyd died. Minnesotans think less of Black Lives Matter today than before he died. So my friend, the more things change regrettably, the more they remain the same. What has to happen regrettably is And it's not just training. There has to be a cultural shift. Police officers have to shift from the warrior mentality to a guardian mentality. The warrior mentality allows allows personnel carriers to be running through the streets of Ferguson, Missouri or Brunswick, Minnesota. That warrior mentality authorizes army gear to be commissioned to police departments across the country, that a guardian mentality means cops don't want to deal with homelessness or mental health issues or drug issues. They'll tell you, we're not social scientists. You You shouldn't send a trained killer when someone has a mental health issue. You should you should send a men, a mental health expert instead. So until this going to be in a popular
0: that- view, I'm going I'm to tell you this: the the reaction by people when I see I don't want to talk about generally, but I see enough reaction, and I'm going to zero in on that case in New Jersey that we just saw. The, I'm sure you saw it where the two teens were in a bit of a of a of a scuffle and a fight,
1: and they, by, and they go after the black person.
0: I, Correct. Coddle the one kid. The the white kid sitting down with the really bad haircut, that one, he actually at one point did this. Like you would have thought at one point he thought he was gonna get copped. And you know what? They they were caught. Are you okay?
1: You are right. You know, regrettably, you know, regrettably, the, the the vestiges of racism and implicit bias are still rampant. Most people believe that are afraid of black people, black and brown people. Most people, and, and, it, and it's that fear, regrettably, that powers the narrative, even from our former president, they play and they exploit that fear. That's why there's a, there's a, there, there, there's a, there's a rampant rage of, of gun sales. That's why the second amendment will never be repealed or even weakened because of that fear born from racism, I suggest. And when you have police officers who are victims of the brainwashing that most of Americans are brainwashed to understand, when you see portrayals of black and brown people as criminals or drug dealers, and not enough portrayals of them as bankers or lawyers or firemen, it impacts the culture and the psyche of the population. So it's it's implicit. That cop, I'm sure, doesn't wanna be unfair, but that black kid doesn't look like his brother or his sister or his father or his son. So that cop doesn't see that black kid with the same sense of humanity that he sees the white kid who does look like his son or his daughter or his brother or his cousin. So, we, so it's a fundamental change that has to come but racism regrettably is at its very core.
0: Carl, how many cases do you try or do you prepare for that involve some element of racial bias, prejudice, discrimination in one way or another? Even if it's with just a witness who you're counting on
1: or if it's your your client or a survivor. Let me say something first so you understand. I was born black, I'm gonna die black. I just don't wanna die because I'm black, I don't do woe is me. I love being black. I wouldn't have it any other way. Neil, you white folks have it easy in America, (laughs) I say, okay? But so every day of my life that I walk into a courtroom, I have to be mindful that I am a black male who is very passionate and that passion can be mistaken for anger. That's what I I wanna ask you. How
0: do you, that was the reason I was asking. Uh, When you start to talk to a jury or you start to talk, how do you address those issues if you do it all or do you just be yourself and say, It is what it is, and I'm gonna be fine. Uh,
1: One, I understand that with jury selection, there's the 80-20 rule. 80% the jurors are talking, only 20% I'm talking. I'm being an active listener. I'm playing Phil Donahue. What do you think about that, Ms. Jones? What do you think about that, Mr. Smith? How many agree with them? I'm trying- I remember Phil Donahue, so I- (laughs) Yeah, I'm trying to build my village. So I'm, how many of you think that the sky is blue? You know, how many of you think that water is wet? I'm just coming and, and, and building my village. And at some point, I, you have to, Jerry Spence would always say, You got to show me, you got to show them yours before they'll show you theirs. So I say, I sometimes am a bit crazy. And it's it's not because of anger, but it's because of passion. So I wonder, is it possible if you get mad at something I do that you don't hold it against my client because it's not their fault that their lawyer is a crazy man? (laughs) I love it. And then after and, trial, after uh, trial, we'll talk about what I did wrong, due to my, but don't hold if my client, that their lawyer is a crazy man. But you have to open the veil and I say expose your vulnerability so that you can develop the village that you need in order to prevail, particularly in a, in a criminal case, man, you know. I do 80% of the jurors walk into the courtroom, assuming the person on trial did something wrong. You know, most of them make up, make their, make their minds up after opening statements. So you never waive opening statements as a defense lawyer. I say, there are precious few opportunities as a lawyer that you have to talk directly to the jury. So you always take those chances to do that. We have something here in California now called a mini opening, even before jury selection. So rather than having a statement of the case, you can give a two or three minute mini opening. We plaintiffs fought hard to have that part of the legislative roadmap in California, understanding how important it is Mm-hmm. On those rare occasions to talk directly to the jury. And in, in California, that the judge shall grant a mini opening if either party asks for it. So um, you have to be vulnerable. And it really sounds touchy-feely, but it's no, true. No, but I
0: know, but I know what you're talking about. I know. The, no, you can't have people sitting there. And they do this and end up with everybody sitting back like this and not communicating
1: because you need... Because, because over the, out of those 12 people, the bullshit meter will be detected, man. <laughs> right. You know, out of the 12 of them, they're going to figure out the bullshit meter. So you got to make sure that you, that you show them genuine. I know
0: a lawyer whose voice is so bad. He has the single worst public speaking voice ever. And time after time, I have said, you know... Maybe as opposed to trying to moderate your voice, which never works because eventually when you get in the heat of the moment, it goes up. Maybe after a while, maybe just try this, even if it's in a minor case, you know, with a misdemeanor or something, maybe just tell the jurors the truth. Say, hey, look, I, I don't like my voice. I wish I had a great voice like the judge or like Mr. Douglas. I wish I had the ability to communicate like that, but I don't. So. My voice can irritate a lot of people and I hope, I just wanna know like, you know anybody like that? What do you think about that? Is that gonna get in the way? Is that something that I should be concerned about? And people are probably gonna go like, no, don't worry about it. We just
1: wanna hear what you have to say. You know, Neil, I'll tell you, man. And I tell young lawyers, I said yesterday, your voice is an instrument, so use it. And I think, You can, because we are actors, learn to improve the way that you present your case to become more effective. And I would argue not to be resigned to accept that I have a terrible voice. (laughs) He does. (laughs) Listen, listen, I stutter, I stutter, man. And when I'm not on the record, I talk so fast that I stutter. So I have to take a measured, and that conscious effort, when someone's on the record, when I'm on a podcast, to talk more slowly and to enunciate better, because I'm mindful that I have a tendency to talk too fast and to slur my words. My wife always said, what do you say? What do you say? What do you say? I get it. <laughs> my grandfather did that to
0: me. I used to, we had, I talked fast, I ate fast, and he would always look at me as I was talking. He would go, slow down. Um, and I get that. So, Carl, what lies uh, ahead for you? I know that you probably have got a bit, You've got a, a busy schedule. I can't thank you enough for talking to me. It's been great to chat with you. Um, what lies ahead for you? Uh, got trials coming up. Are all your cases in California? I'm sure they're all over. Just kind of give me a, uh, an overview of what lies ahead for, for Carl Douglas.
1: Sure. I work at the firm Douglas Hicks Law. We're five lawyers, primarily a personal injury firm. Probably 15% or 20% of our 100 cases are civil rights, police aspect kinds of cases. Probably 30% of our cases are employment cases. And a smaller percentage are criminal cases because, as you know, I think criminal law is a young man's game. In California, man, you can drive on the freeway in Los Angeles County for an hour and still be in the city limits. That's, a, that's a, a, a physical geographic that is unlike most of the country. You can drive on the freeway of Los Angeles from San Pedro to the Valley for more than an hour and still be in the city limits going 60 miles an hour on the freeway. So there's often in criminal law, as you know, court appearances, you're driving all over the the, the place. With the advent of technology that has now been reduced a great deal. Um, In terms of trials, there has been a general reduction over the last year. I've gone the longest of my life without being in trial. I'm jumping up and down off the walls. At the same time, Neil, I'm not looking forward to being in trial with a mask on. For me, one of my greatest weapons of persuasion is my face. And having a mask on really makes it difficult for me to to impact jurors in the way that I am most comfortable. Having jurors with masks on in some of our trials here even the witnesses have masks on. So I think that is makes it more difficult for plaintiff lawyers and for criminal defense lawyers, um, trying to seek justice when when you really have to have the connection that having the mask makes more difficult. I have several trials that have been backed up waiting to come forward this year. I probably, will never retire, Neil. I tell my friends, retirement is a concept for employees. <laughs> and I love my boss, man. My boss gives me everything I want him to do. And for me, the brain is like a muscle. You have to continue exercising it. I agree with that. Amen. Work. And bro, for me, there's, no, there's nothing you can do That is more fun with a suit and tie on than try a lawsuit. All right, last couple of questions. Yes, sir. What
0: is your favorite gotcha moment that you that you in trial where you're cross examining somebody? Mm -hmm. What is your favorite gotcha moment? I I mean, you know, you're you can handle the truth type moment. Your personal favorite, one that you look back on, you go, you know what? If I'm remembered for anything else, that's the moment where I, I just. I got that witness, the courtroom stopped, time stopped, everybody stopped, the sun stopped, everybody looked and said, got him.
1: I'll tell you, I can't, that's a great question. I don't remember being asked that question, but one of the greatest got you moments, and I hate to, 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 it, it sounds so trite, But I was sitting in the courtroom in June of 1995 during the O.J. Simpson trial when they had this glove demonstration, man. There's a camera boring down on you from above. Everybody is watching. There are millions of people that are watching everything that you do. Johnny Cochran says, okay, guys, they're going to have O.J. try on the glove. Don't anybody make a reaction. I have no idea what is gonna happen. We've sat through weeks and weeks of mind numbing DNA evidence, but here the murder glove is gonna be placed on the hand of the accused murderer. And then in that moment, when they put on this glove, And O.J. Simpson realizes it's not gonna fit. He stands up and starts showing his hands and walks over to the jury. (laughs) And my brother, that is a moment in time that will remain with me until I take my last breath. It wasn't me cross-examining, but it was... Well,
0: you know what? We'll we'll give it to you because it was one of the all-time great moments like... Eric, it, that is one of those moments where time seemed to stand still, right? Where you're oh, absolutely, and in, and you know you and never you're breathless. To... You're like,
1: okay, no. <laughs> you're breathless, right? Yes. Oh, oh, and yes. if you ever see the if you ever see the scene, look at Marsha Clark. She's gonna slink down in her chair. <laughs> it's right. I,
0: I want to see if I can just pull this up real quick and see if I can. Let me see if I can get this out here. Uh, let
1: me see. But Neil, that that was the most dramatic moment, and and I've I've cried.
0: This is a scene right here. This is the beginning of it, right? What's yes. There a model oh, absolutely.
1: Glove that you shipped to Bloomingdale's exclusively. Yes. I'm, and I'm sitting right next to Natalie Bailey. There, right uh, there oh there yeah, no, 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 I'm enough. Gonna... As well as the gallery carpet at Rockingham. Look, wait, on- wait,
0: wait, 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 wait! You see Johnny? Look at. Yeah. Hold on. And you saw him because you were there.
1: But I- <laughs> look at that face. He has he to put on a plastic office. glove because there's biological evidence That's in there. Here seven, it goes. Seven, Here it goes. Here it goes. Now he's working. Now he's working. Now he's O.J. Simpson right now. And you and what are you and here's Darden of course he's got to be
0: he's got to be pouring sweat right now. Correct. Right.
1: Oh yeah and, man.
0: And you're right here. Here yes. you are right here. And what are you thinking as you saw him put that glove on it doesn't fit.
1: It okay. doesn't fit. That's what yeah I'm screaming I'm thinking it doesn't fit
0: unbelievable and there you yes, are right sir. there. Right. There Have yes. it aged a bit. So all right, here. You can see you can and see the here. He,
1: He's, he's a naked something. gun mode. It's it's naked gun mode right now. He's an actor now. It, now there. He goes. <laughs>
0: the
1: audience is is, is 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 stunned, riveted, right? Riveted. It's not fitting. And Chris wants him to hold a hold a uh, sharpie. He looks like a knife. Hold. Is that the right hand glove? Huh? <laughs> Look at Marsha, Marsha. She's dying inside right there. Oh my, you're gonna make me cry, man.
0: And and I'm gonna pause for a second, because I, I of course, only was next to O.J. Simpson in real life for a few moments. And I am telling you, charisma, and I, I understand, I don't, that may offend some people, but that is
1: the truth. Oh, no, no. And, Charismatic. And what right? you don't see is the jurors are on the edge of their I'm seat. I'm on the
0: edge of my seat, as I'm oh. sitting here. You're on the edge of your seat.
1: Oh, that's what you don't see. It's, it, it's, it's magnificent. All right. <laughs> now this is,
0: is this Johnny back here?
1: Yes, okay. correct. He's under the watch. What can I do? What can I do? There you go. All right. Thank you, Council.
0: I mean, wow. Um, what a moment. I'm getting what, goosebumps. I'm getting goosebumps just watching it again. <laughs> what a moment. I mean, so, I mean, unbelievable. And I, and I probably could find a video, but you've seen it, if you were you, your reaction where he walks back afterwards. But what was your, what do you remember your reaction to be after that?
1: Game, set, match. Mm. Just don't step on yourself walking out the door. You know what I'm saying? I do, I do. Game, set, match. Because the murder glove was real evidence. And that scene, Neil, was seared into the memory of the, of the jurors, for the That was in June. Trial was until October. You know what I'm saying? That was in June, man. <laughs> it was... ah, uh, It's unbelievable. Just don't unbelievable mess it up. Just, just don't mess it up. That was a
0: thought. Well, and you guys didn't. So, Carl, I have taken up so much of your time. You are a real gentleman. You are, um, uh, to me, I know you're probably wondering, why does this guy keep asking for me to be on to, to talk to me and to pursue... And your, your, your team was great in, in, uh, in getting back to me and communicating with me. And the reason is, is that, to me, you, you were a participant in one of the all-time most significant, one of the biggest cases in history. Putting all that aside, um, I saw during that trial, I saw after that trial, and I've seen you since that trial, that you have your own way about you. And... Um, you're magnanimous and you have your own gifts and your own passion and your own skill set. And I, I, it was just something that I knew that I, 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 I wanted to talk. I wanted to hear your thoughts. I wanted to have this conversation. And just being able to live, relive that moment with you just now was something that I'm going to cherish for as long as I continue to do this podcast, as long as I continue to practice law. So Carl Douglas, it was an honor, truly an honor to
1: have you uh join me on the killer cross-examination podcast and neil thank you so much for having me on killer cross-examination podcast